Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome along. I'm Charles Rowe. You can catch your weekly podcast into England's past every Thursday, so please subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode. Today we're heading behind the scenes at Belsay Hall Castle and Gardens as the finishing touches are put on a major multi-million pound project to conserve and transform this historic country estate in Northumberland. It's a project that we first covered back in episode 57 of the podcast when it got underway and we're delighted now to welcome our three guests to talk us through this final chapter. Yes, hello, I'm Cheryl Moore, National Project Manager. I'm uh, Dr Andrew Hahn, I'm the head of the historians team. My name is Dr Michael Klemperer. I'm the Senior Gardens Advisor for English Heritage for the North and Midlands. So for people who don't know Belsay Hall Castle and Gardens, can you describe it and why it's sort of attractive? What appeals to you, Cheryl? For me, it's escapism with Grecian architecture, exotic plants, a medieval castle and its own microclimate. You completely forget whereabouts in the world you are at Belsay. Andrew, what sticks out to you, you know, for Belsay Hall? How would you describe it? I think the thing that struck me when I first visited Belsay was the quarry garden with its majestic cliffs and, and all the sort of foliage hanging down. And, and it really do, you really do feel like you're going into a different world. And really, when you then come out of that sort of dark passage to the light and see the castle for the first time, and you see the, the, the ruins of the castle sort of almost rising out of the uh, turf, it's really quite a magical experience. What about you, Michael? What appeals to you on a visit to Belsay Hall Castle and Gardens? Um, Well, the whole thing's attractive, but it's not only attractive, it's exceptional. It comprises of a castle, a very stark hall and a remarkable garden in between the hall and the castle. Around the hall, which is Greek Revival architecture on the hall, is surrounded Italianate terraces cut in remarkable stone symmetry. So it is it is both remarkable and, and romantic in this borderland tradition. One of this country's truly magnificent gardens. Andrew, we've covered um, Belsay Hall, Castle and Gardens a few times on the podcast. We've been there in person and we've covered it a couple of times, you know, doing these types of remote interviews. Could you remind people if they haven't heard it or tell people for the first time? Who actually lived at Belsay Hall and how has the estate changed over time? Well, really, for over 700 years, Belsay has been home of the Middleton family and they still have a presence on the estate today. They're an important Northumberland gentry family and every generation has left their mark on the locality. So for many centuries, Belsay's life was centred around Belsay Castle, which was built as a fortified tower house, probably by Sir John Middleton IV, we think, in the 1390s. It's a grand statement of the family's status in the neighbourhood, but it also gives them protection for themselves and their livestock because at the time in from the sort of 1390s right through to the sort of 1600s, the border area where we are is a quite a sort of lawless area where there's lots of clashes between bands of, of soldiers from England and Scotland and 
lots of cross-border raiding. So you really do need to have a fortified house to live in this part of the world. And we think the tower was probably added to an existing manorial complex where the Middletons have been living since at least 1270. We know that they welcomed Edward I there in 1298 when he was up in the north of England, for instance. And then during the 15th century, the castle is expanded. It's, well, I've described it as being aggrandized by Sir John Middleton VII, who's particularly known as an accomplished soldier during the uh, Wars of the Roses, but also as a naval commander for the Yorkist King Edward IV. And he probably adds a west wing to sort of balance up where the tower is in the manorial complex. And he also has the great chamber in the tower redecorated with a new scheme of painted murals, which sort of commemorate his family lineage and his naval exploits. And, and fragments of those paintings still survive in the castle today. Then we move forward to the early 17th century and you get the union of the crowns under James I. And this brings a bit of calm to the border region. And that allows them to build an undefended manor house in the area between the tower and the west wing. And this we think is probably in place of an earlier great hall or other buildings that were on that in that location. And they add a porch onto that in 1629. And you see above the porch today, you have a, a plaque which commemorates the construction by Thomas Middleton and his wife. Fast forward then to the 1660s, you get the first baronet. He remodels the West Wing, puts in some new sash windows and this sort of thing. Then you move forward to the third baronet. He's a keen horse breeder and racer, and you get an improvement and modification of the stables. And his wife, Anne Ettrick, she, along with her husband, is involved in considerable improvements to the estate, which includes laying out a sort of fashionable English landscape style, which includes the folly on Bantam Hill, Bantam Folly, and also the laying out of a winter gardens. And also the creation of a, a lake, Belsay Lock, which is now gone. And all you see of that today is the, is the boathouse, which survives in the middle of a field. So lots of sort of things happening. And then that brings you up to the period of Sir Charles Monk. And actually what we see today is largely his vision. And I'm sure we'll, we'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. Just broadly speaking, it's a really varied property with lots of layers of history and the Middletons owning it until Sir Charles Monk comes along, effectively. Well, Sir Charles is actually a Middleton. He he changes his name from Middleton to Monk in 1798 in order to inherit the estates of his grandfather, Lawrence Monk of Cambie in Lincolnshire. That brought a lot of wealth to the family. So he changes his name to Monk, but he is, in fact, a Middleton. And really what we see at Belsay today, the picturesque landscape which unites the castle, the hall and the gardens is, is very much his vision. He had a classical education at rugby school and he re- he's an avid reader of sort of garden literature and 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 also literature about uh, the ancient world and we also know from his two-year honeymoon in Greece and it's during this honeymoon that he picks up lots of ideas for his development of the site while he's there he visits a lot of the ancient sites he takes measurements of some of the ruins and he also keeps a very detailed diary of the landscape and flora as well as the uh, antiquities that he sees and and he brings all this back to Belsay and he uses the ideas that he's got in his head to shape his plans for a new hall, which he's building on an elevated location, some distance from the castle. And this is built in a, a sort of austere Grecian style, ancient Greek style, on a raised site. And the building is exactly 100 feet square, and it sits on a stepped plinth or crepidoma, which is just like an ancient Greek temple would have done. And it has an entrance portico, which is unusually sort of set back into the building and supported by these two enormous 20-foot columns, which are copied from an ancient Greek temple in Athens known as the Theseion. 
and also the stone blocks from which the hall are made are, are, are so finely cut that they don't need any mortar between them. And this is a technique that some of the ancient Greek builders use. So he's very much the building of the hall is is influenced by his Greek travels. But so too as the are the gardens. I mean, he lays out formal gardens in a sort of a Humphrey Repton style just, just beyond the house. But also he creates this unique quarry garden in the void that's left when he quarries the stone out to build the hall. And the quarry is fashioned in such a way as to create a sort of, it's like a sort of high-sided ravine which twists its way towards the castle. And its picturesque nature is heightened by planting trees right on the edge of the cliff so that it makes the height of the quarry look even bigger. And in the quarry bottom, he's able to plant you know, sort of tender plants which wouldn't normally survive this far north in in Northumberland because of the sort of microclimate that's created within the quarry. Initially, it's fairly sparsely planted, but then he begins to introduce additional plants later in his life. And as you emerge out of the quarry, you come out to the ruins of the castle because when Sir Charles moves his family from the castle to the hall in on Christmas Day in 1817, he has parts of the castle, particularly the West Wing, ruined so as to cr- make it a sort of picturesque ornament for his new landscape park. The other bits of the castle, the manor house section, is sort of remodelled as a more modest residence for his estate steward, Edward Clint, in around 1820. So he's creating this landscape where everything is influenced by his travels in Greece and his and his the, what he's read and the sort of textbooks written about Greece at this period. And it really has is this picturesque vision which links together the hall, the castle and the gardens into one sort of coherent whole. How and when did the estate then come into English Heritage's care? Sir Charles had a very long life. He died in 1867 and the estate passed to his grandson, Sir Arthur Middleton, and he lived there right through until the 1930s. And we know that he made lots of additions to the gardens in terms of planting lots more exotic plants in the in the quarry garden and improving the formal gardens as well. After his death, you get another couple of owners within the Middleton family. And then during the Second World War, the house is taken over by the army. It's requisitioned for use as a, a training base. And you get a lot of soldiers based there. And it's during this period that the, the estate really deteriorates in terms of it's not really being cared for. The house is damaged by the soldiers who are living there. And it returns to the family, to Sir Stephen Middleton, the ninth baronet. He returns to the, the house in 1945. And it's in the rather a state of disrepair at this point. And it's not a particularly comfortable house to live in or to live in with limited resources. And Stephen's circumstances are far reduced from the income that Sir Charles and Sir Arthur would have had. And so he makes the, you know, the sad decision to move out of Belsay into a smaller property within the estate. And the hall is then left empty. All the contents of the hall are sold off. And at this point, dry rot sets in. There'd been a problem for a long time with the drains on the roof of Belsay, and it leads to dry rot in the house And then in 1980, the hall and the gardens and the castle ruins are taken into the guardianship of English heritage in order to preserve them. And it's then that they have to do work in terms of stripping off some of the internal plaster work and timber within the hall in order to deal with the dry rot. And that's why the house, as we see it today, has some of it sort of stripped back to bare bones rather than being seen in in its original form. And the castle buildings, too, had become semi-derelict at this point and had to have the roofs taken off and a lot of the interiors stripped out as well. So that's why Belsay is as we see it today. And then we've been sort of working on, obviously, conservation work since the 1980s to try and preserve what's there and, and restore some of the interiors to a semblance of what they were before the 1980s. It's interesting, isn't it? Because when you walk in, see the pillar hall, which is the first thing you see, which is almost like you're in 
grease or something. And then you go upstairs and all the wallpapers are sort of stripped back and you can sort of see some layers of time and, and occupation there. And you see some of the old electrical sockets and light switches and things. But um, it's almost as if people have just moved out when you've walked in. It is a little bit, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, I mean, the hall is displayed without furnishings because that was what was agreed when it was taken into guardianship. And because of the, the nature of the fact, it almost looks like a sort of renovation project in progress where, hmm. you know, some of the things are stripped back to bare stone and in other areas you've still got the interiors reasonably intact yeah, yeah. It, it's a bit, quite an atmospheric place in that respect that is obviously a, an aspect of the property which is really interesting and the state that it's in is is part of the reason why we're having this conversation really so we'll bring in national project manager cheryl moore now so what was the vision cheryl for this belsay wakes project uh, why was it necessary andrew's touched a bit on the maintenance aspects well, Belsedo has been known for its hall and beautiful gardens, but there was so much potential for it to be more than that, for play and adventure and to really engage with families visiting the site. So we knew we had to undertake a major conservation project to arrest the deterioration of the historic buildings and landscape. So this was really our chance to seize on that opportunity and expand on it. What are the different elements then of the project? You've got a lot to cover, haven't you, really? We have the repair and conservation work to the hall and castle, restoration of the historic gardens, conversion of the derelict coach house into a cafe, including a new woodland play area, a new car park, which may not be so exciting, but absolutely essential. And we've also introduced an interactive interpretation scheme focusing on the castle and the gardens. Okay, so for anyone who's not in the in the know, interpretation is... English heritage language for information panels and, and that sort of thing? <laughs> so yes, information panels, which is something that we were lacking before. So visitors will be able to come to site. They'll be able to walk around and read about the history of the site, what they're looking at, and there'll be seasonal trails to follow as well. And I suppose a way really just to engage with people who are visiting the site. Mm. Now, this project has been going on for quite a while and we were talking about it, I think, at one stage during the pandemic and here we are in 2023. So when did this all start um, in the planning and, and is it actually finished? The planning for this project started over a decade ago. Construction work started in autumn 2021 and will be finished this autumn, autumn 2023. It's been a lengthy process, as you mentioned, just before we started on site, there was a global pandemic. Once the construction started, there was an economic crash, an energy crisis, but the finish line is in sight and it really has been worth all of the hard work. So how many people have been involved over this really long period? It must be quite a few. I think including internal staff, volunteers, consultants, contractors, I'd imagine over 200 people have been involved, but that doesn't include the tens of thousands of visitors who've engaged with us along the way. And speaking of visitors, what will they see and experience that's new? I mean, the cafe sounds quite appealing already, I must admit. It does. I mean, the first thing they'll experience is our magnificent new car park. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but relocating it has allowed us to restore some of the historic parkland and improve accessibility, which we've continued around the site. Visitors will notice the restored gardens, which Michael will be talking to us about later on. But I think the key difference really is the new cafe and play area. Previously, the coach house was this damp, derelict, boarded up old building. And now it's a bright open cafe full of colour and natural light. And it's really brought that part of site back to life. We've taken the opportunity to introduce screen technology 
so solar panels, air source heat pumps, for those interested in renewable technology. And the play area has been designed really around Belsay and taking inspiration from the site itself. It's suitable for all ages, including any adults with a sense of fun. (laughs) Okay, so big kids are invited to play. That's good to know. Which particular area is that in? Because I've been there and there may be people from the northeast who've who've been there a few times. But um, is it near the cafe area? Is it near the end of the sort of tour, so to speak? I suppose anyone who's familiar with the site, it's at the, yes, certainly the end of the current visit on site. That's something we really wanted to change. At the moment, everybody gets to the hall and then they walk through the gardens and they get to the castle. And at the moment, that end of the site where the castle is, is quite certainly quite quiet. And people tend to have a very quick look around the castle and then head back through the gardens. So the coach house is opposite the castle and what we've created is somewhere to stop and have lunch enjoy your surroundings and yeah certainly somewhere that children can play so we've created the play area within the woodlands which previously there wasn't anything to see there it was kind of 1980s trees that were in there and now it's this huge huge play structure as I mentioned it's it's taken inspiration from the site itself so we've got elements that are inspired by Greek architecture the wild man of Belsay and the Middleton's plant collection. So some of the play equipment has been designed around these giant exotic plants. Yes, we'll talk about the Wild Man of Belsay idea with Andrew a little bit later. But this is a place where you can conclude your tour, have a nice relaxation, something to eat and drink, and enjoy the view of this medieval castle while the kids go off and play. Yes, absolutely. So I think what you'll gain from your experience at Belsay is... What was maybe a couple of hours on site, a half day experience to a full day on site now. And that's really worthwhile. One other thing I should probably ask, actually, is the medieval castle, how much of it is undercover? Because some of it's ruined, isn't it? Some of it is, yes. So the, I suppose what was the original castle itself is all undercover. That's one of the, um, actually, we're quite lucky at Belsay. Most of the buildings do have a roof, which is quite rare in English heritage. So, yes, you're undercover in the castle. There is a Jacobean extension, which, as Andrew mentioned earlier, is in more of a ruined state. But certainly you'll be able to enjoy the site in all weathers. And I understand um, alongside the new information panels that have gone in, there's accessibility has been improved as well. So can you tell us how? Yes, so we've introduced a changing places toilet facility. We've increased the provision of accessible parking bays in the new car park. But we've introduced a new path network around the site so visitors can explore a step-free visit. And our new interpretation scheme is accessible, as are elements of the new play area. So that's good if you've got um, mobility issues or, or if someone's in a wheelchair or something like that, then you can really move around quite easily then. Yes, and we worked with several accessibility groups and access auditors in the design of the site As I said, really, certainly anyone with mobility issues will find a a huge improvement when they come to site. Anyone with buggies and children as well, everything should be a lot easier to navigate. Now, going back into the reasons for the transformation, why was it necessary to complete all this work to the hall and the gardens? Well, re-roofing of Belsay Hall was really the main part of the works, conservation-wise. The top floor was filled with buckets to collect rainwater, 
and daylight was visible in many areas through the roof. And this posed a real risk to the collection and the interiors, as well as the fabric of the building itself. So we were able to salvage much of the original slate and timber from the roof and reinstate that. And we also undertook an extensive amount of masonry work to the hall, castle and coach house. And the site's been open throughout the project, I understand. Is that right? Yes, and I'd say this was one of the more unusual parts of the project. We didn't want to close the doors during the project. We wanted to use this as an opportunity for people to come and see what we were doing. So we had a public access scaffold, which took visitors up to the roof itself so they could look down on the contractors undertaking the work. But I think the most exciting part of that was the helter-skelter slide that they could take back down again. The slide was open to everyone, not just those on a rooftop tour. And we had people of all ages and backgrounds on that slide. And I think that really opened the door for this sense of play and fun as part of the project. We also held many behind-the-scenes tours, Heritage Skills Days, and we ran a sign-a-slate campaign, which allowed visitors to, I suppose, become part of history. They got to scribe their name on a piece of slate before it was placed into the new roof. So that slide idea was actually... A new thing then that people would not have been able to experience? Yes, certainly not. So the slide was actually fixed to the scaffold of the main hall, so it wasn't on site previously. And the same designer who designed that slide has designed our new play area. And there is a very similar slide that's gone into the wild man's play area. So as I said, it really kind of started that idea of play and fun on site. But it was unique for English Heritage and certainly a first and hopefully the first of many projects where we are able to engage with the public in that way. We had several thousand people don a hard hat and (laughs) high-vis jacket and climb the scaffold. It was a really exciting way, as I said, to engage people on site. And you got to see things that you won't ever get to see again at Belsay. It was quite a, a unique opportunity. Certainly visitors won't get to climb above the roofline of Belsay Hall again Mm. um, or see the views from that level again. Uh, Same goes for staff. You know, it wasn't just visitors and we all made sure everybody kind of touched a section of the roof on the the way up or or down the scaffold. Yes. So when it was all down, you can visit again and say, that's where I was. Yes, that's a really unique experience, isn't it? And maybe it might come back if you need to look at the roof again. Yes, I'm hoping many decades, yes. <laughs> many decades to come. But yeah, certainly if we do get the opportunity to do something like this again, it was very successful. And actually we had more visitors over the summer that we were under construction than we had in a long time. So it drew a lot of visitors to site. Mm. What other conservation work has taken place? So we've had a team of volunteers working with our conservators and curators. They've been recording and cataloguing collections on anything from historic wallpaper to decorative fireplaces. They've also undertaken specialist cleaning and repair work. And now that we've improved the environment within the hall, i.e. stopped water coming in, this work can continue beyond the project. Well, let's turn our attention now to the storytelling aspects of the project and what people can learn Uh, as a visitor. So we'll bring back Andrew now. What are some of the new additions that will help bring the story of Belsay Hall Castle and Gardens to life for new visitors? Well, um, Cheryl's already touched upon these, but what we've got is is really a comprehensive set of new interpretation, new ways of storytelling across the site, which really helps to bring the stories of of Belsay to life. And 
I've been really excited to be involved in that along with a, a team of other people, including Emily Parker, our gardens advisor, and Andrew Roberts, uh, one of my fellow historians who've been working on the hall. And basically, what this all starts as you arrive at the site near the new entrance by the 19th century stables. We've got a set of new introductory panels which really help people to plan their visit much better than they have, have hitherto. There's also an audio description tour now for visually impaired visitors. You can don headphones and go around the site and have a really detailed account of what's there in different parts of the site so you can actually really enjoy the site alongside sighted visitors. And we also have, as Cheryl was saying, these accessible routes around the site, which mean that all visitors are able to navigate the site as well. So lots to help people plan their visit and make the most of their visit once they arrive. Then also around the hall, the gardens and at the castle, we've got a series of graphic panels. They're really highly illustrated. They're really lovely, large panels, which have plenty of historical quotes, illustrations, as well as information about different areas. So you have some in the hall, talking about the history of the hall and the people that lived there, some in the gardens, which tell you about the different areas of the gardens and where the plants have come from and and the picturesque vision behind the gardens. And then up at the castle, you can learn a little bit about what the castle was like historically, how it's changed over time and who lived there too. So, you know, you get a lot more information about the site from these panels. But we've also, something again that Cheryl mentioned, we've used the wild man, which is the historic emblem of the Middleton family, as a sort of device to frame some of the new interpretation for visitors, particularly the stuff that we've got that's aimed at a family audience. So at the castle, in the ground floor sort of vaulted area, which some have described as a kitchen, we're going to have a four-minute animated film that visitors can watch. You're narrated and shown around the history of the site on a whistle-stop tour of the site by the wild man. He takes you through the history of the Middleton family and then changes that happened at Belsay. And we've been working on this with animator Bell Meller, who's designed this wonderful sort of very sort of likable wild man character, not at all scary, more sort of a friendly element of nature. And she's worked with writer Miles McLeod and a video specialist at Projection Studios to really bring this story to life of the Wildman as an engaging character who tells the story of the Middleton family in a sort of fun and accessible way, whilst also conveying lots of historical detail. I mean, I gave them a, a list of what we wanted to include, and I think there's a sharp intake of breath, thinking, oh gosh, we've got to get all this into four minutes. But when you start doing it with projection and with animation, as well as with sound, you can actually get lots of detail in there. And I think it's been pretty well received so far those people that have seen it and there's also a wild man trail through the gardens with a series of wooden posts decorated with some of bell's illustrations and these can be enjoyed by all visitors but are particularly aimed at families again that encourages them to look out for signs of nature quirky and hidden features within the gardens as you're traveling from the hall towards the castle and alongside these we've got a seasonal trail as well for those who are more interested in the plants and the changes in the gardens over the course of the year so you've got these two different levels of trail all the trails lead towards the castle and also this new children's woodland play area, which also has a sort of wild man theme, as Cheryl was saying, and links to Greece and to the plants at Belsay. And that's a really exciting thing. I'm really looking forward to seeing that when I, I go up to Belsay for the, for the launch event later in the month. Obviously, you've described the, um, this animated wild man and the fact that he was on the family crest. But what is he exactly? Is he some sort of mythical figure from the northeast? Well, yes, the wild man is, uh, he appears on the crest. He's, the, the crest has a sort of helm or helmet above the shield and the wild man sort of sits on the top of the helm and he's a sort of hairy, wild-looking man with a you know, hairy body, 
pretty much naked, carrying this uprooted oak tree. And the wild man has been associated with the Middleton family right back to at least 1479, when he appears on a seal, a sort of wax seal, which is on a document in Durham Record Office. And we also know that there was a painted depiction of a wild man holding a shield with the arms of John Middleton VII. And this was in that painted mural that was on the great chamber within the castle. And it was directly opposite the doorway. So when you came in towards the great chamber, you'd see this huge life-size figure of the wild man holding a shield in front of you. So it clearly shows the importance of the wild man to the family over their history. And then he appears in lots of places around the site today. So he appears above the entrance porch of the manor house on the plaque above the doorway there. He also appears on, a, on an armorial window dating from 1699, which is in uh, in the collection store. And there's also in the collection store, they have the remains of two statues of a wild man and a wild woman, which once stood on the gateposts of the formal garden, which stood up in Belsay in the mid-17th century. And these statues, only parts of their bodies now survive. So the woman, the wild woman's body appears to have been painted red and the oak tree a sort of deep green colour. So you could imagine these sort of life-size statues, highly decorated, very brightly painted, standing out either side of the gatepost as you arrived at the, at the estate in the 17th century. So clearly the wild man has been really important for the family over many generations. And it appears still in the book plate, which is in the library books in the, uh, in the library, that was in the in the in the hall. All the book plates have the Middleton coat of arms with the wild man above the crest there. So what does he signify then exactly? There's a sense of a sort of the noble savage, someone who protects humanity but is also part of nature. And so he's in some ways he's he represents wild nature, but in other sense he, he re- represents sort of the human response to nature as well. So sort of the fact that people are part of nature. So he sort of helps connect people and nature together. And I think we're trying to sort of bring that out in the play area and in the interpretation as well with this reference to the picturesque because that's all about ruggedness and wildness. So it really ties in quite nicely with this notion of the wild man as this sort of wild and rugged character. Interesting. In the course of your research and in in the course of these transformations that were taking place on sites, did you discover anything historically significant or new? With any historical research, we always turn up lots of new things there's a couple of things that sort of really come to mind with me. One is the various sets of documents related to the third baronet's racing stud. I mean, I, I hadn't been aware of the fact before I started doing research just how important he was as a breeder and racer of horses in the north of England in, in the mid-18th century. And we know this primarily because when he died in 1757, he was very heavily in debt and had to sell off all his household goods and all his horses And the pedigree stock of horses, I think it was about 30 horses or so, were worth £975. Well, that doesn't sound like a lot, but at the time, that's tens of thousands of pounds. And we know that his most important, famous horse was a a chestnut stallion called Whistlejacket, who was sold to the Marquis of Rockingham in 1756, just before the third baronet died. And he's now, of course, immortalised in George Stubbs' famous 1762 portrait, which hangs in the National Gallery, showing the sort of horse up on his hind legs. It's a fabulous painting. So we know that horse was bred and and raised and also raced by the Middletons at Belsay. And the other thing, it was actually a discovery by my colleagues, Emily and Andrew. They found evidence that the Cragwood Walk, which is one of the most rugged and picturesque features of the Belsay landscape, they found out it was designed not by Sir Charles Monk, who we'd always suspected, but by his second wife, Mary Elizabeth Bennett. 
And they did a bit of digging and discovered that not only was she an accomplished landscape painter, but also a plants woman who was very good with gardening, garden design. And we've been able now to attribute a number of 19th century paintings that we already had copies of, digital copies of, to her rather than the original. We'd originally attributed them to a more distant relative, but we discovered they were actually by the second wife, Mary Elizabeth Bennett. So I mean, really interesting discovery. Ah, so gradually piecing together new aspects of the Belsay story. It's brilliant to be able to bring these new stories to light. I mean, as, as Cheryl was saying, there was very little interpretation previously other than the guidebook and a, and a few very short descriptive panels in some of the rooms in the hall. So visitors really were making it up for themselves as they walked around, whereas now, you know, we, we can tell these stories to them and, uh, you know, there's going to be a new guidebook as well. So there's going to be lots of new information out there for visitors. So let's bring in Michael Klemperer now to talk about the gardens work at Belsay. Can you describe some key features perhaps in the quarry garden area and some of the other areas which uh, will stick out to visitors? Initially, the hall, you, you go through the, the magnificent stables that have been subject to an extensive National Heritage Lottery Fund scheme to restore the, the hall, including the roof. So you present with this magnificent hall and then you go down onto the formal terraces which are, have been masterfully worked on by Dan Pearson, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Then we go from those those quarries, we go to the Hall Woodland, which has been restored to its kind of Mediterranean glory. And then we go from the Hall Woodland through another terrace called the Magnolia Terrace, where, again, the planting's been completely restored. And then on to the Bowling Green and Winter Garden, again, completely restored. And then on to, through the, the secret door, if you like, into the quarry um, area, into the quarry gardens, where Dan Pearson has done his work on the quarry meadow, which is a which is a woodland meadow, and Dan's done some extensive bulb planting there. And then we then we walk into the quarries themselves. There's the tropical exuberance of the east quarry, and the, then the west quarry is much more stark and representative of the original ideas of Monk with those quarries of Syracuse, and then you come through that and you see the castle, the picturesque in front of you. And if you take a little left turn, you can go past the rhododendron garden, which we've yet to work on, and up to Cragwood, which is a for our more adventurous visitors is a, is a walk of three quarters of a mile or so, round a, a circular walk round some really picturesque scenery around a lake and a very picturesque woodland with pines, which we've had to replant because of Storm Arwen. Unfortunately, we lost over 200 trees. There was extensive damage throughout Northumberland, but we've worked with our partners on the Belsey Estate to replant 1,700 trees with their help and with mighty efforts of the garden team under their head gardener, Debbie Crombie. And we've replanted the woodland area, so it's a significant achievement. It sounds as though Dan is a real trailblazer and has really added a lot of great value to the project and to the environment in general. Um, is English Heritage quite lucky to work with him? We are, yeah. And um, he, he's a gentleman, Dan. And he has a real feeling for that picturesque planting and that way of plantsmanship and embroidering seasonality into a garden so you start with bulbs then he then has early summer planting that's 
followed by later summer planting, followed by autumn planting, and then, you know, splashes of winter colour. It's an art that, you know, many garden designers don't have that in-depth knowledge that Dan has. Dan is a real master, and he's on top of his game in that particular art. And we're doing a long-term collaboration with Dan on this garden. So it's not, although the the garden is, you know, technically finished, we're going to be working with him over the next couple of years to see how the garden progresses and embroider that planting over the next couple of years. It's already uh, bearing fruit. Our visitors sort of noticed the hydrangeas on the, the magnificent Magnolia Terrace have really taken off over the last year. So the whole woodland is really taking off now. And it, as our visitors have noticed, as the planting progresses, it's going to become richer and richer. Oh, it sounds like a little slice of heaven, doesn't it, really? Well, that's the idea. <laughs> yeah. The picturesque movement was intended to inspire the visitor with you know almost a little tapestry of the wild of almost there is some biblical connections to the garden of eden and heaven so it's meant to be a you know a very moving experience going around good gardens and i'm sure it is to many visitors yes and a kind of a geographical one as well to go around these gardens because you can be in the northeast of england in northumberland and yet you could be almost in greece or sicily or somewhere else in the mediterranean whilst you're going around these paths and, you know, through these different environments. Yeah, indeed, yeah. And it really is becoming quite evocative. Previously, the whole woodland was, sadly, it, it got to the stage where it was full of laurel. There was very little, a few self-set rhododendron. It was very dark and gloomy, really. And now the idea originally was that it was like a Mediterranean hillock with pines on it, and you can imagine those those Mediterranean smells, you know, kind of rosemary and sisters. And when it gets hot, you get those kind of volatile oils from the pines. And we've returned it to that. So we've removed all that, that, that laurel. We've planted it out with sisters and Dan's embroidered it with woodland, a great variety of woodland plants. When you go in there now in, in warm weather, you can smell the um, wonderful kind of aroma of these plants. And also you can, from the hall, you can see visions of this planting. And if you reverse the experience, you can see visions of the hall, which you were always meant to. And the hall's, you know, the hall kind of comes through a tapestry of tree trunks. It's incredibly evocative. Wow, I can, I can see it in my mind's eye, you know, being framed like a picture. It's beautiful. Have there been any... Uh, new areas of the garden made that visitors perhaps who are living in the region will get to try for the first time if they come back well the terraces are are very much restored so you can actually see the full extent of the paths now as before they were a little bit cluttered and overgrown the planting had reached an essence really and needed to be rejuvenated and also cragwood we've done a lot of work on the paths and on interpretation and rejuvenated the uh, woodland. So our visitors are encouraged to follow those broader trails. And as, as we um, go to the next stage of the work at Belsa, we will be opening up other areas such as the rhododendron garden and the kitchen hot walls in, in the uh, paddock. So as this project concludes and the final touches are added, what new additions are you most proud of? I'll ask Cheryl first. I'd have to say the new coach house and play area. So we've completely transformed that area of the site and we've saved a historic building in the process. Andrew, what do you think? 
I think for me, it's actually the small details I'm, that I'm most proud of. What springs to mind is the reconstruction drawing of the Great Chamber in the castle. This appears on the on the panel within the Great Chamber now. And this took actually hours of painstaking research to get right. I was working with a reconstruction artist who works for English Heritage, Bob Marshall. He was asking me all these questions about what the room would have looked like. And given that it's just a, basically a, a stripped out room with just bare stone now, it was quite hard to visualise what it might have looked like. But we had a few little clues and through the research, we were able to look at the surviving small elements of decorative mural. And with a few archival sources, actually work out there was a whole series of shields hanging off lopped trees which were around the room. And we were able to work out what the pattern of those would have been around the room to get it exactly right, hopefully, and as far as we could through the various bits of evidence and also there was a completely lost ceiling there a lost coved ceiling and you know we're doing a bit of research to try and work out what that might have looked like and even the furniture we had to sort of use educated guesswork because none of this survived so it was really nice to be able to bring this together and to see the final version that Bob produced and to see how amazing it looked and how colourful compared with the very monochrome room today with its just bare stone. For you, Michael, what additions are you most proud of in terms of the garden presentation as it is now? Well, I think the project's been long run because we had issues, minor issues of COVID and Storm Arwen. And I think I'm very proud of my colleagues who've stuck with it, really. And I'm proud of, you know, Dan because and our suppliers, you know, and our project manager and our, our managers who stuck with the project. They had a few moments we had to... Uh, Many staff furloughed off during the pandemic, which we forget. We had the garden staff planting on their own, so to speak, in, in uh, you know, and quarantine and all sorts. So, you know, we worried about uh, enough gardeners there to keep the, the, the plants alive. So the whole project's been, its fruition is, is an achievement in itself. But more than that, the work on the gardens has been really transformative and will continue to be transformative in the next few years. And the feel you get, before it was very claustrophobic and a lot of the plants were growing into each other you couldn't see the edges of the beds you couldn't see the you were meant to see feel like you were in a quite an open mediterranean area you were losing that sense of transition between the formal the exotic and the wild picturesque that was it's a real raison d'etre of belsay without that without that vision that monk originally had and the embroidering with all that plantsmanship of, of Arthur Middleton, if you lose that, you're losing the real soul of Belsay. You're losing the essence and soul and reason behind that garden. And I think with Dan's work and the work of our, our garden team, we're recapturing that essence. And I think recapturing the essence and the spirit of Belsay and bringing life back in to Belsay is really what this project has achieved. And it's, it's a remarkable achievement. So finally, what do you hope that visitors will take away from a day out at Belsay Hall Castle and Gardens as a result of all this work? I hope they sign up to a lifetime membership. <laughs> but apart from that, I suppose the desire to keep coming back to site. I think what we've created is something that allows people to have a different experience every time they come to site. And I'd like them to keep coming back. And Andrew? Well, I mean, I think I hope they go away with some understanding of what the picturesque is and why Belsay is such an outstanding example of this type of, of landscape. I also hope they go away knowing a little bit more about the Middleton family and their lives at Belsay. 
And if all they remember from the trip is the wild man and his uprooted tree, then I think we've achieved something. So it, it will be different for different people. But I hope people go away having learned something. Lastly, Michael, for you, what will visitors take away from a day out at Belsay Hall Castle and Gardens as a result of this transformative £8.9 million project? Well, I think that the experience will be better all round for the visitor. We're getting back to the essence, garden-wise, of what Belsay was and the vision of Monk and Middleton. And that vision really is a transition, a remarkable transition, which is one that is not done in many gardens between the formal, so the formal Italianate around the hall with its formal terraces and rich planting and Mediterranean feel, working through the gardens to the quarry gardens. You know, is it Northumberland or you, if you just stumbled into a Himalayan glade or something or, or part of the tropics, it's, it's, it's really extraordinary. And then you, you've, you burst out into the picturesque castle you can see the broader landscape of Northumbria beyond, you know, this great sweeping view of the parkland with the hills beyond. And also, if you go up to Cragwood, there's that wonderful picturesque walk. And I, I think what the project has achieved garden-wise is to recapture that significant transition between the formal, the exotic, and then finally the picturesque, which was always in Monk and Middleton's minds, and as the garden gradually fell into somewhat disrepair, really, and senescence, that was lost. And I think we've done has done a masterful job of recapturing that. Also, the poor hall itself, the roof was leaking terribly. That now, thanks to the, the National Lottery, has been, and you know, a lot of work by English Heritage has been saved. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, join us for the story of King Henry V and his pleasance in the marsh at Kenilworth Castle in Warwickshire. Probably the way that it worked is Henry got into a boat at the back of Kenilworth Castle where there was a water gate and he had himself rowed across. And actually, as you go round the corner, you'd finally disappear from view. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>